You are listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. The world is evolving. Your investments should too. Hi there, this is Raj Lala, and I'm joined today with Nicholas Badminton, who is a futurist. And Nick is a very well-respected speaker, author, researcher, related to so many different topics, related to AR, VR, renewable energy, gene editing, personalized healthcare, autonomous transportation, smart cities, the future of AI, and so on. Uh, He appears regularly on BBC, CBC, CTV, Global News, Vice, he also writes for TechCrunch, Huffington Post, Forbes, VentureBeat, BetaKit, TechVibes, so on and so on. Obviously, a very, very well accomplished individual. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. It's a pleasure to be here, Raj. So, we're going to talk about a whole bunch of topics today, uh, given that you're a futurist. But maybe we should start right at the top. What really excites you the most right now when you kind of take a look at our world over the next five, ten years? So it's interesting. 50 years ago, Douglas Engelbart down in Stanford uh, demonstrated the world's first personal computer. It's called the Mother of All Demos, and you can see that video on YouTube and other places. And in the last 50 years, we've, we've seen a huge amount of change in the world, so through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and the 2000s. But what I think excites me the most is that today in 2018, We've got so many technologies that are exponentially growing, research and development, academia, uh, you know, the media are, are talking about such change in the world that, that we're building this exponential growth. And I think that more is going to change in the next 20 years than it's actually changed in the previous 100. I, I think we're just heading towards that third industrial revolution where communications and energy and transportation is just going to completely change the landscape of how we do business, how we live our lives, and how society operates. Yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really interesting time and seems like a, a pivotal time uh, in our world. You know, once in a while it, it seems a little scary and overwhelming, but some of the changes that are uh, around the corner are already getting integrated into our lives are probably more exciting, I would say, than, than scary uh, let's pivot over to genomics. Uh, we're going to yeah. cover a few topics today. So, you know, many people are familiar with the term cloning and stem cell therapy, but what are some of the new technologies going into and techniques that are going into uh, genomics at the moment? So I, I think I, I think around genomics and around uh, looking at different gene therapies, I think, I think it's a hugely fascinating world that's, that, that, that's going on right now. I think one of the biggest things that's happening is around gene editing. Uh, so CRISPR-Cas9 uh, using proteins to break DNA and fix it with RNA. The, the, the ability to edit out congenital diseases from someone's uh, DNA uh, before birth or even doing therapies like some people have been trying to do at the moment to people that are already alive to to take care of everything from like Parkinson's through to other congenital diseases. I think that's hugely fascinating. It's a technology that's been around since the 80s, but there's there's true momentum behind applying that to humans and, and the problems that we have. I, I think that that can extend into everything from uh, longevity to general wellness and, and well-being. I, I think we're just, just on the cusp of sort of changing that that idea that we're only going to live to the age of 84 or 85, as they say, is the average in the world. Uh, and, and it's going to push out to beyond 100 for, for many of us. 
What's really interesting is it's going to be a case of those that can afford it versus those that can't. Um, you know, the ethical decisions about, you know, doctors deciding whether someone should have that treatment or not. They're really pushing this research in China, and they're, they're being a lot, lot braver with human test subjects than we are in the West. Hmm. So going from genomics, uh, let's go over to the future of the automobile. And I guess within that, mm. there's probably two subtopics to talk about. One is the electrification of the cars today, and then also the technology yeah. that's helping us to uh, move towards autonomous vehicles. But let's start with the electrification. You know, a lot of countries are talking about banning the internal, internal combustible engine uh, yeah. in the next, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. Norway, for example, says that it's going to be all electric by 2025. Countries like India and Germany are talking about it by 2030. This is obviously a pretty big global trend. How do you see this playing out, and what do you actually think are the biggest impediments to uh, the adoption of electric vehicles today? Yeah, so um, Norway is actually aiming for 100% of new vehicle sales being electric by 2025. The way they actually have subsidies working, it's cheaper to buy a Tesla Model S than it is to buy a BMW M3 there today. This this kind of uh, government-level decision is is sort of changing that industry. I, I think we, we are at a very exciting time. I was just down in Silicon Valley, and do you know what? As I was driving driving around and down the highways, I didn't see thousands of electric vehicles. I didn't see thousands of electric vehicle charging stations. Mm. I think... I think we've got a, we, you know, there's, there's some expectations that need to be just settled right now. Electric vehicles are coming. I think the next 12 years, uh, electric vehicle developments and sales are going to gain momentum. But for the next five years, it's, it's going to be pretty slow going. Um, we've got the collective uh, um, automotive manufacturers at the Detroit Motor Show saying they're going to invest $90 billion in this. We had VW just say that they're, they, they put in orders for $48 billion worth of batteries. We, we've even got like, people like Lamborghini and Ferrari going, going full tilt towards you know, producing electric vehicles as well. So it's coming. But we, we're still in that point of there are some cars on the roads. There are some problems with supply and demand and really getting more, more rolled out. But, you know, you know it's, it's, it, it's stalling a little bit. You know, we've seen Tesla problems with production. We've seen Ford make a decision to stop making normal vehicles um, to go full hybrid for the F-150 and the Mustang and then going uh, full tilt towards um, self-driving vehicle fleets, um, electric vehicles in there as well. So it's, it's kind of interesting. In, in fact, self-driving vehicles are going to hit the roads and going to become dominant a lot, a lot longer before we've got electric vehicles. So uh, about 2025, the Department of Energy down in the States actually thinks that we're going to have more vehicles on the road that are self-driving than owned, which is, which is pretty crazy because that's only seven or so years away. But 2030 mm-hmm. is going to be when electric vehicles are going to be dominant. And, yes, uh, various countries are saying that they're going to start banning them off the roads between 2030 and 2040. I actually think you're, you're going to see China make a huge step forward with this kind of technology. Every five weeks, China puts about 10,000 electric buses on their roads. And and just these kinds of top-level government decisions are going to make the change happen a lot quicker in places like that. I haven't heard much about China because I thought that they were, you know, sticking with the combustible, but that's 
That's no. interesting to see. Obviously, they can they can really uh, change the overall uh, dynamic and, and trends in the world as it relates to electric. That's that's good to hear. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was uh, I was just in LA last week speaking to BMW China, um, and I can share a link with you to the presentation I uh, I did, and, and you can share that with your listeners as well. It's fascinating what's happening over there. China is going to change a lot quicker than we are in the West, but um, their attitudes towards electric vehicles probably aren't going to change that quickly. But um, you know, as China does, it says this is the new world. Get used to it. The, you know, the cost of the battery has obviously come down. That's kind of made uh, electric vehicles a little bit more affordable because they were not very affordable, you know, five, ten years ago or yeah. virtually non-existent five, ten years ago. But also the other thing that I hear a lot about from people is the lack of infrastructure that we have, charging stations and so on. Do you do you see that? I mean, that that has to improve uh, and increase significantly for there to become wider adoption of electric vehicles. Don't you agree? Yeah, so uh, if you actually look across Canada, there's actually a pretty extensive amount of charging stations um, based on the amount of vehicles that are actually out there that need them. For there to be a tipping point change for people to, to buy electric vehicles in, in their droves, we're going to have to see parkades in residential apartment buildings going almost 100% electric vehicle compatible. We're going to have to see shopping centre parking. We're going to have to see uh, other sort of city parking really step forward to have a lot more electric vehicle charging. I know like Ontario and Quebec governments have stepped into this uh, we, you know, wholeheartedly to, to make this happen. I think we're seeing that in British Columbia as well. It, it, it's still taking time. It still takes a while to get that infrastructure in. We could actually be in, in a situation within three years that there's more electric vehicles on the road than, than there are charging stations, and it's going to become a lot more of a public issue. I think that's when you know, pressures on government and municipalities are going to really step up, and, and those sorts of things are going to start to make the changes happen more quickly. So who who owns that infrastructure, Nick? I mean, is it going to be the car manufacturers that are going to set up that infrastructure, the charging stations, or is that do you see that as being eventually you know government run or independent, like the way we have obviously gas stations? I'm just curious, like who actually takes the initiatives? Yeah, a, a little a little bit of all three actually. I mean, we've got Tesla's charging network, and obviously like Tesla owns that. Um, we, we've got private vendors that, that own stations, and, and you can literally go scan a card, charge your vehicle, it gets charged back to you. I think municipalities are going to have to step up. <laughs> I think that there yeah. will be private private charging stations in, like, you know, single-family homes and also residential buildings. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to work out these business models going forward because right now I can plug my electric vehicle into into a wall socket in my garage down here. And, and suddenly I've got free electric. But now, um, you know, it, the conversation has stepped up and we're going to get infrastructure put in. That costs money. We're going to have to have, you know, level two uh, charges put into each of, the, each of the bays downstairs. That costs money as well. But, you know, who owns that? Well, that's going to be outsourced and there'll be a subscription. But is that going to work for everyone? I, I think there's going to be multiple models. I think that people in the cities... Um, especially around destinations where tourism is really big, I think the municipalities are going to have to step up and uh, sink that cost themselves. So we have we have uh, medical sorry we have recreational marijuana legalization around the corner here in uh, in Canada, and obviously part of that is the implementation, and they're going to start to actually sell cannabis 
in the uh, in the uh, liquor stores in, in Ontario, specifically the LCBO. Going back to this whole charging station concept, do you think that uh, maybe the Shells, Petro Canada's SOs uh, decide to also set up charging stations for electric vehicles uh, on their premises as well? Yeah, so this is something actually I chatted to the Canadian Fuel Marketing Association two and a half years about and, and saying that this is going to be the, the new model. And in fact, that's what's happening. Um, we're actually seeing some of the, the large sort of gas stations actually putting electric vehicles on their forecourts. Um, it is starting slow, but it's going to, it's inevitable. Uh, the diversity, you know, biofuels and biodiesel, uh, electric vehicles and, and gasoline is going to be there. You know, I live in Vancouver. I think there's, there's something like four, maybe five gas stations in the whole of Vancouver. Um, you know, the downtown core or within yeah. sort of two miles of the downtown core to, to service you know, upwards of 600,000 people, right? And you've probably got something like 200,000 vehicles. You know, business is going down, uh, and, and, it's, and it's changing. I, I actually imagine a future in 10 years where you, you're going to almost just have, like, one, maybe two gas stations in, in any major city. Um, they're going to take the majority of the money from that, but the others are going to start to convert their courts to be able to do electric vehicle charging, but also, you've got a captive audience then. So, you know, cafeterias, lifestyle shops, and whatever, you're going to have this mix of retail. It's going to change. It's really interesting. It is very interesting. So, moving from electrification to autonomous, what's your view on, you know, where we are from a technology perspective related to autonomous vehicles? I mean, I talk to some people. They think that, you know, the technology is here and, and or just around the corner. Other people feel that... Uh, the technology is still about five to seven years away to have full autonomous uh, cars. And then as an extension of that, because you're a fellow Canadian, uh, let's say that the technology does get there in the next you know, few years. Where do you see legislation allowing uh, autonomous cars to get on the road? So where's the technology today? Well, we're still in a situation where you put the best AI that we have, um, the best card, card sets and sensors on some of these new cars, and, uh, you know, there's still problems. Uh, so when we take our driving tests, uh, very quickly we learn to drive incredibly well, and we don't need to drive millions of miles. So, so here's the difference between the human sensor ecosystem and our capacity to process information in real time and, and artificial intelligence and, and the, the and those self-driving vehicles. You know, it's about training. I think what's going to happen over the next five to six years is you actually see the taxis, municipal transport trucks that are going to be the first uh, vehicles that, that go full tilt into self-driving mode. I think that you'll see self-driving autonomous corridors um, on on major roads and in cities as well. I think that these are these are the inevitable futures that are coming. I think widespread self driving is probably yeah six seven years away, just because of that learning that needs to happen. The, the bottom line is you know 3,200 people a day die in, in car related accidents, and that's because of human error. If we can just even affect that by like five or ten percent, um, we're already in a better world. That's the promise of autonomous vehicles. The, the thing is, and this is what Toyota, CEO of North America, said, is that you know people are still going to die. <laughs> and, yeah. and what happens? We, we're just going to have to get get used to the world of hearing that autonomous vehicles have caused accidents and and people have died. 
But we need to look at that in the context of, you know what, humans would have caused that, that same problem as well. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, there's kind of interesting ethical, uh, considerations and public shock to, uh, to get used to here. So it, it's a cultural change thing and that's why it's going to take a little longer. What do you think of LIDAR, by the way? I mean, you know, I, it seems like such a fascinating, uh, technology to obviously help with autonomous vehicles. And then you hear people like Elon Musk saying that, you know, he doesn't think it's that great and he thinks it's too expensive. For the people that don't know, maybe you should just define what LIDAR is. Yeah, so, so LIDAR is basically a detection system that works on the principal radar, but it uses light in the form of a laser. So it shoots out light, it maps, it catches that information, um, terabytes of information every minute. Uh, it processes that. It's, it's really accurate. So I don't think it's going to exist on its own in its current form, and yes, it is very expensive. I think it's going to be a mixture of cameras. It's going to be a mixture of LIDAR. It's going to be a mixture of uh, eventually like sensors on the streets and in the roads. You know, this whole ecosystem is around uh, what, what people are calling sensor fusion. You, you, I, I think the LIDAR is really useful. I think that it's all about what we find to work the best, and I don't think that we've proved that LIDAR is hands down the absolute best solution, but I don't think that we've proven that, that video or or infrared or, or any of these other technologies are really working to the level that they need to be, right? You know, so it's one of those things we're going to watch out over time. I think we're going to have hy hybrid sensors. I mean, there are some... Uh, um, companies out there doing R&D where they've got all of their sensors hidden within the vehicle and the vehicle looks completely normal. Um, that's down in the valley. I can't say which company, but it's it's fascinating what's happening. And uh, we, we're going to see an evolution in what those sensors are. And uh, the bottom line is self-driving vehicles in the future are just going like, to look like normal vehicles. They're not going to have these big roof-mounted <laughs> sensor stations. Yeah. Uh, that's not the future at all. Okay, let's pivot over to some uh, to another topic, smart city. So sure. Google's Sidewalk Labs announced recently that it's planning to build a smart city by developing, I guess, I think it's like 12, 12 acres on uh, Toronto's waterfront. Well, first yeah. of all, let's, let, maybe you can define for everybody what is a smart city and are there similar projects going on in the world uh, and what's it generally look like? So um, it's fascinating. There's about a thousand smart city projects happening in the world right now. A lot of them are in uh, early stages. 500 of them are in China. <laughs> this is another wow. big change that's coming to China. Yeah, but you know, if we I was just out in Toronto, I, I got to take a look down at, at where they're proposing to put in the sidewalk labs smart city, and you know, it's interesting. It's out towards Leslieville. It's right on the water, and and uh, it could be really interesting, but. Again, you know, Google and Sidewalk Labs uh, have kept the doors pretty tightly shut, and they're keeping their plans pretty secret. I mean, who's gonna who's gonna sign into these platforms? Who's, where's the data going to be kept? You know, this is a municipal area that's supposed to be good for the city of Toronto and, and business and whatever. But are we going to expect uh, all of the people that, that live and work around there to sign away their rights to the information that they're clearly going to be bleeding as individuals using that? It, there's so many implications on, on what's happening around privacy, around infrastructure costs, around the ability to be relevant because technology changes so quickly. Are you going to spend millions of dollars building a, a smart city only to find in two years that your platform needs to be upgraded, but from a hardware perspective, uh, at a cost of tens of millions of dollars more. You know, th again, this is the new world, and we're trying to work out what's really going to work. 
are we going to suddenly find that we build a smart city for Toronto that in 15 years is obsolete based um, on what technology that a city like Calgary or Edmonton or even Vancouver has, you know? Uh, and then is it going to be a technological battle uh, for supremacy for the, the smartest city in Canada or the world? Let's talk about data, big data. So yes. uh, I think it was I think it was around this time last year. The Economist had an article, put out an article that said that you know the most valuable resource is no longer um, is no longer energy. It's 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 sorry, no longer oil. It's data. Yeah. And yeah. what do you what do you think of what do you think that do you think data is the new oil? What do you think? How valuable uh, is it? Because I you know I was actually at a conference yesterday. With uh, with the head of data analytics from one of the major banks here in Canada, talking about how they mine that data and how useful it is to them, and obviously there's a social responsibility to that data as we you know as we've all learned about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. But well, tell, tell us what you see the real value of of data being going forward. So if we look at the most valuable companies in the world, the, the five most valuable companies by by market cap in the world. So we've got Alphabet and Microsoft, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple, right? All of those last year put $800 billion worth of market cap on their valuations. On a single day in October, they put $161 billion on their market cap, and $60 billion of that was Amazon. All of these broker data, it's an unlimited resource. This is the new power in the world, data. And by 2025, we're going to have about 163 zettabytes of data being created every single year. That's the equivalent of a billion, billion high-definition movies. In terms of mining that data, we're only going to be able to, to mine and use about 0.5% of that because it's going to be you know, so uh, prevalent in terms of uh, and wide-ranging in terms of what it is. You know, but even just mining that small amount of it is going to yield a huge amount of value for us and our organizations. The companies in the future that are going to be the most powerful will be the companies that have got complete um, capabilities to to manage, to collect, manage, process, to analyze, and and act on the data that they find strategically. It's it's going to be very valuable, I think, to a lot of companies out there. It seems and what they actually do with it. But what do you? But the, the, talk about the social responsibility of that data, yeah. like like the the policies that companies have yeah. to not uh, divulge that data. Because I mean, you also hear a lot of arguments that you know basically companies are making a lot of money off of my information and I make nothing off of it. Do we start to see in a world, and maybe this kind of ties into blockchain a little bit as well, but do we start to enter into a world where people actually get paid for their data? So, you know, we we can actually head towards uh, what what, um, a very renowned uh, thinker, Jaron Lanier, um, calls micropayments, microtransactions, where we could, you know, set up uh, an agreement between us and, and the big tech companies and say, okay, I agree to use your platform. You let me use that in return for access to my data, but I, I limit what you can access um, for free. I limit what you can access and you can sell on to partners, and I limit some of the things that I don't want you to use at all. Is this an inevitable future? I, I hope it is. I think it's going to be a rough ride to try and get there. The bottom line is, in, in the mid-'90s, the world uh, was persuaded to to really expect everything on the Internet to be free. And what we didn't realize back then was by the virtue of everything being free, that meant that we became the product. 
So we, we've got to undo over 20 years of expectations and, and, and cultural norms around using systems for free so we can take back control of our data. Could we have those ecosystems? Yes. There are some companies that are actually being formed using blockchain technology and the such like to, to you know, broker out our data. I do think the personal information, information brokerage um, will be, uh, you know, a home industry in the next sort of 25 years, but it's going to take a long time to get there. Um, it, it, it's a really interesting discussion, especially around information privacy and, and around privacy of children especially. Yes. Well, this was a really great discussion, Nick. Before we close off, you want to uh, tell everyone what you think to, are the, you know, the two or three biggest disruptors or innovations in technology that we're going to encounter over the next five or ten years? Yeah, I'm going to talk about a few things. Number one is going to be machine learning, artificial intelligence. As, as data grows in the world, the ability to process that will be uh, paramount. To do that, we'll need artificial intelligence, and, and that will have to be native on chipsets and in devices. I think that you'll find every mobile device, every computer, you know, every post terminal, every, everything that, that we use in a hardware infrastructure in our business will have chipsets with artificial intelligence and machine learning embedded in there. It will be the foundation for, for everything that, that's going to operate in the world. And uh, Andrew Ng, who, uh, who's one of the founders of Coursera, used to work for Baidu, and now he's uh, working a lot of different AI-based um, businesses, says that artificial intelligence is the new electricity. And electricity changed the world in the 1900s. It's going to be the same for AI. Secondly, and uh, probably one of the most profound things that will change how the world operates will be renewable energy solar power. Uh, I think you'll see cross-border grids. Uh, out in Asia, you've got the Asian supergrid that's going to go across five different countries with renewable energy being generated across them and, and shared openly. I think that that's going to happen in North America. I think that somewhere like Alberta can be the new renewable energy solar powerhouse of the world, um, and it needs to just stop pumping oil. That's, that's controversial for a lot of people in Canada right now. But this is, this is the change. Solar power is going to grow in dominance. It's gonna. It's, it's an unlimited source of power. Even even black silicon and nanotechnology is enabling us to make power when the sun doesn't even shine. So I think we're going to see a world of solar farms, uh, abundant energy, home, homes that are self-sufficient, and businesses running you know for, for almost zero cost in terms of energy uh, on their own supply. And that's when abundance and that's when exponential growth really starts to take place. That's an interesting point. Just a quick question for you. What are, you, what are your thoughts on wind, wind power? Because, you know, we, I have a, a cottage northwest of uh, Toronto, and uh, there, was, there was massive acreage of wind farms. Uh, but yeah. I've noticed that some of the turbines have actually started to come down, uh, be taken yeah. down. Like, is, 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 it not, is it not catching on? There's a real challenge with wind farms. Um, the, the technology... It, you know, the, the turbines only turn when it hits a certain rate of knots, and it yeah. only makes us – it doesn't – you don't start to make more electricity the faster that the wind blows necessarily, so yeah. they're not that efficient. Um, I do think that they can be very useful as part of the renewable energy ecosystem. I don't think they'll disappear. I think solar will be dominant. I think hydro will be dominant, especially places like Western Canada. I do think the wind will be part of the solution. I just don't think we will. We would put all of our money in wind and nothing else. Great. Well, thank you very much. This was uh, very interesting today. Uh, Nick Badminton, 
Appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Rod. You have been listening to the Innovators Behind Disruption, a podcast series brought to you by Evolve ETFs. Remain educated. Be informed. Sign up for our newsletter and learn more at EvolveETFs.com.